Welcome back to Rethinking Politics, episode 32. This week we're going to be discussing energy. Now, there's a lot of there's a lot of pieces of this discussion that we're going to be threading together. The proximate reason for us discussing this is the Texas power outage. I'm sure you've heard and if you didn't hear from the news, you probably heard it from me if you're listening to this episode. <laughs> Being in Texas, our episode was delayed for the week. I spent most of the week running around trying to stay warm with my family at different houses, or at least the, the early half of the week, and then the latter half of the week wondering if that would happen again. There's the idea of uh, there's what happened in Texas, first off. What on earth is happening? Why is California... This wasn't too long ago that California was experiencing rolling blackouts with seemingly no weather mm-hmm. instigation. Yep. There's what do we know about energy and how it works, a kind of scientific question of, of what's effective and what's not, what are the real-world limitations to energy. And there's the questions of market, which is costs and benefits, right, of people's choices regarding these and how they affect us. And finally, there's the political question. What is government doing? How is it involved? How are these things shaping all of these others and affecting them and helping us respond one way or another to the to the physics, to the economics of it, to these other factors and, and the way the public perceives them. And for this episode, we're going to definitely use the the starting off point of the Texas power outage because that is the most recent one. That is the one that has stirred up so much controversy, you know, as as people have used it to to lambast the other side and accuse them of of fundamentally failing in in whatever they happen to believe in, and that's the cause of of the the Texas power outages is is the other side every time. <laughs> right, right. As usual, the two parties have managed to look at the same thing and conclude that it proves the other one is wrong. But what we want to do is we want to break down and see you know what actually happened, and, and then we, from there we can go and talk about energy in general and and how this this whole system works. So first of all, in Texas, Dan, I don't know if you're aware of this, but it got very, very cold. Oh, oh, did it? Yes. Tell me more. I, I live in Texas. It doesn't seem very cold right now. In fact, one week after that happened, it was 80 degrees. <laughs> That's crazy. Going from zero degrees to 80 degrees in a week is crazy. At its coldest there, Texas had a day where the high hovered around zero degrees. And then a week later, it was literally a high of 80 degrees. We had an 80 degree shift. That's, it seems to me like that shouldn't happen. <laughs> I've never seen that happen. It's a massive, massive change. But the long and short of it is that it takes a lot of energy, it takes a lot of electricity to heat homes up when it's cold outside. And Texas is normally a cooling state where the busiest months in terms of power consumption are during the summer. That right. normally during the winter it doesn't get very cold, and so there's not a whole lot of heat being used. But during the summer is when you have the highest demands for power consumption. Yeah, for most of the winter, I do not run any heating. Yeah, and that's crazy. That's crazy. Especially someone coming from, you know, up here in northern Utah where it's it's a very different story. <laughs> right. I'm from Idaho and so it's cold as cold as the norm there. You don't get away with that in Idaho. Um it naturally with that cold, as you were saying, that that increases the the amount of energy needed. People are consuming more. And because it's a lot more. A lot more. Not a little more, a lot more. It's a significant yeah. increase. And these power grids are are supposed to be designed to handle that increased consumption because it was really interesting 
reading up about this, about how the power grid works and how it's designed to deal with these unexpected situations. Because when we think of power, we think of it as being relatively stable. You know, the power plant produces the electricity, it goes to the people, and they consume it, and that mostly stays the same. But really, the power needs of any community ebbs and flows, not just throughout the year, but even throughout the day, that you consume more power during the day or at night, depending on your needs. You know, in winter, it's going to be more at night, because that's when it's going to get the coldest. During summer, it's going to be more during the day because that's when it gets the warmest, you know, because heating and cooling are the two most expensive consumer needs in terms of energy. And so what we had is a massively increased demand for energy in Texas because of this cold. In fact, the, the energy demand exceeded what their projected expectations were for a really bad storm. You know, it wasn't like no one had ever thought it might ever get cold in Texas. You know, believe it or not, ERCOT, the Electricity Reliability Council of Texas, who's in charge of this Texas power grid, they had a plan and they had a projection of of how much energy would be needed and it was lower than what was actually needed. But that's just the first problem. The first problem is the increased demand because there have been times in areas where the demand is so great that even with all the power plants working, they cannot fulfill the demand and have to do something, have to have some kind of rolling blackout. But that's not what happened here. What happened here is you had the increased demand and then on top of that, you had reduced production. So things that were made to produce were not able to produce. Right. And some of these things include like wind is a good example. There is a lot of wind energy here in Texas. You can get it more reliably here than you can in most states. But it's not perfectly reliable on a normal day, right? Wind comes and goes. (laughs) How much you're producing from that varies. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the fact that Because winter is such a a low power consumption time, there are a lot of places that are closed for maintenance. There are places that straight up aren't in the production, aren't producing power, because this is the time when you reduce your production. This is that time of year. Mm -hmm. And so the capacity to produce that Texas has was well under its, its maximum. And then you add to that the cold and the effect the cold had on different areas. And that really, really reduces production. Yeah, and, and as people are, are name-calling and pointing fingers and trying to figure out who is directly responsible for this incident, what was the one thing that caused this problem? You know, people are saying, oh, it was the renewable energies. The renewable energies were directly responsible for this blackout, or it was because of the the fossil fuels, the the gas and the coal, or it's because Texas was independent, and that was the reason, or it was because- Lack of regulation. Lack of regulation, because Texas would deregulate. Those are the four things that I've heard the most. It was one of those four, you know, it's because of renewables, because of fossil fuels, because of deregulation, or because of Texas's independence. And pinning it on any one of those is simply inaccurate because there were so many different factors that came into a play. And I'd like Agreed. to I'd really like to talk about each of those each of those in turn. So renewable energy. That one is interesting because they both sides obviously feel pretty passionately about it. <laughs> so renewable energy production was way way down. Almost almost nothing in terms of how much they were producing. But renewable energy 
isn't the largest producer of electricity in Texas. It is a very large producer. An unusually large amount of Texas's power is produced by wind. That's unusual. And as Dan said, it's because there's a market for it in terms of the climate. You need a certain situation for wind power to be effective. They were able to find that situation. On top of that, they were able to build the CERT lines that took the power from those wind turbines and carried it all the way over to the heavy users in those big cities who needed it. Right. And you should not hear that because it's it's ideal for wind, that necessarily means wind is the right choice. We're not we're not endorsing wind in this case. We're simply saying that the the incentives came together in such a way that wind became a choice that was made here when it wouldn't be in other places. On top of that, when Texas came up with their power market, their somewhat, they call it deregulated, their deregulated market, there were a lot of financial incentives that were put in place that favored wind energy. And those increased the uh, incentives for people to invest in wind. So because of these incentives that were set up, there's a lot of wind power in Texas. And that wind power was producing almost nothing during these rolling blackouts, during this this storm in Texas. And that's a huge problem when wind is supposed to be or is generally producing about 20% of Texas's energy. But, and here's the thing, is if you look at ERCOT's plan for a winter storm, wind power is known to be unreliable. Because if there isn't wind, if there isn't the environment that you need to produce it, you can't produce it. You can't (laughs) force it to happen. Right. So you don't depend on that in emergency anyway. Yeah. It makes sense that they wouldn't have they wouldn't have factored that in because if you're if you get to the point where you are depending on there being wind blowing outside, you're in trouble. Exactly. So it's already factored in that the wind isn't going to produce. It was a known factor that the wind most likely wouldn't be able to produce if there was this big storm, which means that people should have been okay, right? So that brings us to the fossil fuels. The fossil fuels struggled, especially especially gas. Now, gas is interesting. Natural gas one, the natural gas production is the one that can adapt to the power needs the most. You know, in terms of producing power, you can ramp up or decrease production in a gas plant, a gas-powered electricity plant the most. If you have a coal plant or a nuclear plant, the most efficient and really the only practical way to run those facilities is at 100% capacity, which doesn't work if you need to fluctuate how much power you're producing, which is something you need in any grid, but you need especially in a grid that has, you know, about 20% or so of their power coming from wind. Because when wind is producing, they always get first dibs, which means all that wind power is going to be used. And so these gas power plants are able to reduce how much they're producing to adapt for that. Otherwise, you'd have a serious problem. If everything's always producing at 100%, it doesn't work because right. either because then wind adds 20% and now you have enough power. Or if you have enough power without wind, then when wind produces power, it literally adds nothing. <laughs> right. It accomplishes you nothing. Can, you want something that can be flexible. Otherwise, otherwise, at some point, you're just wasting large amounts of energy or you're or way under under. the amount of energy you need. So this plan counted on natural gas being able to ramp up their production, significantly increase how much power they were producing, and they weren't able to for a number of reasons. Uh, Number one reason is 
natural gas power plants rely on just-in-time fuel, which means they don't have any fuel reserves of natural gas on site or any significant fuel reserves. What they have is the fuel is produced, and by produced, I mean it's, you know, the natural gas is pulled up from the ground, and then it's piped over to these power plants and then used immediately. So if those gas fields stop, then the power plants stop. And that's what happened. You know, you had problem with the winterization, not just not just of these power plants, but of the the natural gas production. And as soon as that had any issues, it becomes this spiraling effect. So the third reason that's been cited for why all this happened is Texas's power independence. And this one is the argument is made that Texas has its basically its own power grid. And because of that, because they weren't able to rely on other states nearby. When they weren't able to produce enough power, they suffered. The simplest answer for this is that I think it was around 70% of the United States was covered in snow. Texas was not the only state having power problems. Several of the other power grids, especially those nearby, were having similar problems. In fact, Texas does have a small interconnect with those other other grids. I can't remember the exact terminology for them. I think it's an ISO, but doesn't matter. With those other grids and no power was coming across that one connection because those other areas didn't have any power to spare. So the argument that if Texas had been connected to these other grids, Texas would have been just fine is inaccurate. Now, the last issue and the one I really want to take a little bit more time talking about is the argument that this occurred because of the deregulation of Texas's energy market. And there's actually, there's a lot of truth to the fact that because of what happened in Texas, how Texas's power system is set up, years ago created the issues that would eventually result in what happened just this last month. That I think is true. What's less true is the argument that Texas deregulated the market. You know, what Texas <laughs> did, you can call it deregulation all you want. What Texas did is just create a different setup for how energy was provided in the state. Now, that setup is complicated and it's messy and hard to, to wrap your head around. Because here's the fundamental problem. If you deregulate the shoe market, then companies are going to produce shoes and sell them to people as much as they want to in whatever ways they want to without any input from the government. That seems to be what the word deregulate means. That's what you right? would think, right? That's when people say you deregulated something. That's what I imagine. So instead, if you deregulate a public utility like power, like energy, and say now you're going to have all these companies have the option to sell people power... What does that actually look like? Well, in Texas, what that looked like is you still have a power grid. That power grid is controlled by ERCOT. ERCOT, like I said before, is the Energy Reliability Council of Texas. And they're in charge of, of regulating how much power is produced, where that power goes to, if there's rolling blackouts, who does it, all of that. So they're in charge of the grid. The grid is not deregulated. It's still regulated. The only thing that's changed is <laughs> how the power is by a bureaucracy. 
Yeah, it's, like run by, it's, it's run by a bureaucracy that's this weird quasi-company that's still controlled by the government, which is what ERCOT is. But then what you have within that is private companies, both private companies that produce power, sell it into this market, and then private companies who take that power and sell it to consumers. And so what we have is this really messy quasi-private, quasi-government grid. It's all one, you know, it's all this this grid that's controlled by the government, but has private parties acting within that. And some of the ways that, that this created issues, as we talked about one, it encouraged the increase in production of wind energy. Because if that 20% of the power production of Texas had been more gas production or coal production or nuclear production instead of wind, Texas would have had more power. But because of the incentives that were set up, you know, with ERCOT system, if you produce wind energy, it will be the first energy sold every time. And so you have a guaranteed market. Unlike these other players who are later in the line, if there's enough energy out there by the time it gets to you, then you don't get any incentive to produce energy. And so that's just one example of what was set up with this deregulated quotation marks Texas system. Right. So deregulated that it is granting an extremely obvious favor to wind. And the other problem with that is it encouraged these companies to be able to produce as much as possible in this supply and demand setup. A lot of headlines were talking about the fact that at its peak, power was costing in those areas where they were paying for for market price for it, the wholesale market price for it, had increased to something like $9,000 a megawatt hour which was many, many times higher than the normal rate. The whole thing is just weird, Dan, the way it's set up. But <laughs> but the problem is, is that is that the one aspect that you have with this thing is that this is still a government-controlled body controlling this government power grid, but these private companies, all these different private companies, are now producing the power, which means you have these different power plants, some private, some government. You have these private companies that are selling it. And so what you have is diffused responsibility. There is not your one public utility who is responsible for what happened. You have a whole bunch of people who are responsible because that private company, their only requirement was to produce electricity for this grid. Their requirement was not to prove that they've winterized. Their requirement was not to have fuel capacity on site. All that mattered to them was being able to produce electricity when they were able to sell it to this grid. And that created incentives where none of these companies had an incentive to prepare for a rainy day because they're not responsible for providing power to consumers. Right. They don't actually run the grid. They don't run the grid. They're not responsible for anything. And then the grid says, well, we're not responsible for producing power. These private companies are. We're just responsible for the grid. And so now everyone's sitting there passing this hot potato off. And what you have is these consumers who think there's there's responsible parties out there. But instead, we have a system where, as far as I can tell, you know, no one can be pinned down easily with the blame. You have to look at, except for the people who created the system. <laughs> right. And uh, and you've got to have a scapegoat. They fired the president of ERCOT. The CEO of ERCOT is gone. But who else do you go after? I don't know. I don't know. 
what you've described is, is one of the really interesting dilemmas right now. So what people tend to think when they look at markets and when they look at government interactions is they go, if market is good in the way that conservatives tend to assume it is, then what we want to do is introduce as many market elements as possible into these government systems to increase their efficiency and increase the way they run. That doesn't work. It has never worked. Markets can't be dissected like that. Like, for example, one of the hallmarks of a market is the buying and selling of goods, right? Right. And that's part of what makes a market work. So let's take that principle of buying and selling and apply it to politics. We should be able to buy and sell our congressmen. And that would make the government system better, right? You know, we should make bribes an official part <laughs> of the system so that we can buy and sell our congressmen to bring the market into government. It doesn't work that way. You can't isolate even, you know, certain aspects or even certain words from the market and apply them to anything and make things better. The market either is or it isn't. The market is the free exchange of goods and services between willing people. If you don't have that, calling it the market doesn't make it so. You know, you can't have a market operating within inside a congressional building, even if you call it that. And you can't have a market inside a government grid controlled by a government regulating body that decides who wins and who loses, even if you call it that. <laughs> right, right. People say this is a this is a failure that was caused by deregulation, and you go deregulation of what exactly? Because the whole system is absolutely swimming in regulations at every level. Some of them are hilariously bad. Some of them, there's a strange perspective that people get where, where if you say it's the opposite of that market thing, markets are good, therefore more market in any situation is good. And then you get the opposite, you get regulation is good, therefore where one regulation is fine, 10 regulations is better. You, <laughs> you, just, you just stack them on top of each other. And so if there's a problem, clearly the answer is more regulation, more rules. If you go and you look at what's expected of these power companies, if what they have to do, what the, the safety precautions, all these things, they are covered in regulations at every step. And so is the grid. The whole thing is as regulated as it is possible to be. What you'd say is this is a failure of their capacity to foresee this disaster and therefore regulate to accommodate this disaster. Does that seem fair, Brad? It does seem fair. That that that, that would be a more accurate problem. It's not like it's not like there's Normal people who can't foresee the future, and then there are regulators who can foresee everything. <laughs> and, and so if you have regulators, right, then, then you get the surety of knowing your future is completely safe. That's, that's an absurd proposition. Otherwise, why don't we just stack like regulatory bodies on top of each other? We can have the regulators and then the people. If that failures, fails, we add another regulatory body who regulates the, the regulators. The super regulators. <laughs> the super regulators. <laughs> this, this, at some level, this obviously doesn't make sense. Both, both this, let's introduce market forces into something that is not a market and pretend it's a market. And let's introduce more regulations on top of regulations because that's the direction that's right. Both of these are, are just too simple. And let me speak a little bit more to that because some people may be thinking, yeah, yeah, it makes sense that you can't have a market. But you've already talked about in your episodes before about how every market is a pseudo market, that we don't have a true free market. And that's accurate. But the real problem with this grid is, is the distancing of the, the private companies from the consumer. Because one of the keys that makes 
the free market work is that these private companies are responsible to the consumer and the consumer has influence and power over those companies because they can withhold their money. You know, it's it's that purchasing power of the consumer is the ultimate check against these companies and, and they're not going to do things that jeopardize those consumers, those consumers' dollars. Right. But when you distance the consumer from the private companies or you make a government entity that end consumer, now you're going to get issues. A great example of that is privately owned prisons. Privately owned prisons, you know, on paper sounds like a great idea. Governments are inefficient. Let's get private companies in and they will make things better. But these private companies are not working for the prisoners. They're not working for the people. They're working for the government bodies that hired them. And the government bodies that hired them, unlike a consumer, are not fully invested in the situation. They're only a little bit invested. And so what these government bodies do is they give these private companies a list of things that they want. These are our requirements. You know, we need the prisoners to get this many calories, to have this much room, blah, 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 down the road. And then the private companies give them exactly those things and almost nothing else. Almost like a genie who is <laughs> who is meticulously reading through the rules and anything they don't have to provide, they won't. And because government bureaucracy is so slow to adapt, what happens is you get prisons and prisoners and and all these situations that are really ugly and nasty that you can look up and read about because these private companies are simply responding to the rules that have been set up in this fake market because it's not a real market where you have consumers yeah. who can respond to it. Instead, you have these big government agencies who simply can't. And that's when things start to break down and people say this is a breakdown of the market, but it's not. It's the breakdown of a pseudo market where private companies are working for the government. And that's similar to what you see here where you have this grid, you have this government organization that's in charge of everything who is then acting and and interacting with these private companies in this pseudo market. <laughs> I, I, as you're talking, I'm just thinking of some of the funny things that we, we discovered that the, the Texas power system has attempted since becoming this, this, quasi-private entity. Now, I I think as, as Brad indicated, to call this a market of any kind is a mistake. I think that label does not apply here. There is There are too many reasons to think that it has nothing to do with normal market incentives, even though you've introduced some kind of competition and you're calling these private entities and, and so on. Here's one of the things that they introduced that just, just cracked me up. So one of the goals of ERCOT, one of the stated mission goals indicated by the laws that created it, and this is the governing body of the grid, says, make sure that no one gets an unfair advantage. Speaking of the companies, right? Make sure that no one company gets an unfair advantage. What on earth is an unfair advantage? Because would, would you say that somebody who invents something that no one else has, has an unfair advantage? Absolutely. Absolutely. Would you say that somebody who's created a way to do something that no one else has or who's, who's working has found themselves the circumstances or the, the location to do something no one else can do have an unfair advantage? Absolutely. There's a million things you could say that give someone an unfair advantage. In fact, every advantage in some sense could be argued. It could be argued is unfair because it's an advantage. And if their job is to make sure that no 
none of these individual sellers gets an advantage. Their job is actually to make sure they're all selling at about the same price. Yeah, it's to make sure they're all they're all basically the same. And that is, in fact, what happened. The only exception, once again, is is renewables because renewables having an advantage is not considered unfair because <laughs> renewables are considered so valuable. Right, which they're considered brings us back inherently to our good. Point. Yeah, people don't realize that the sheer amount of subsidies that go onto renewables. There are times where renewables, by in terms of what they create and in terms of what they offer in market terms, the, the how much power do they generate at what cost is so absurd that you would never do it. But then you tack on an enormous amount of federal dollars and state money, and you say, if you build renewables because we think it'd be good for the environment in ways that that may or may not be able to be demonstrated like people think they are, then what we're going to do is we're going to pay most of the cost. Then things begin to shift in that direction, even if it's a bad idea. Yeah. Government can make profitable things that shouldn't be profitable because they don't work well. A great example of that is those CER, the CERT lines, CERT, the CERT lines that run from the, the windmills, the power generation, wind turbines, they don't call them windmills anymore even though they are windmills, but that's not the point. These these wind turbines that produce the electricity to those who need the electricity, who are considerably far away from those wind turbines, that was an incredibly expensive undertaking that was not paid for by these wind companies, but was paid for by the taxpayer in Texas, which was a massive subsidy for these wind companies. Right. And that's just one example. That's not even talking about all the, the federal subsidies that are already in place for the renewables. That's just one example of, of how the system is set up to favor those. Yeah, yeah. Which means that you're going to get more investment in that than you normally would. And that investment leads to a bigger portion of the, of the power, as we indicated earlier, being unreliable. And part of the reason it needs so much investment is that because wind power is unreliable – and because the power market is so weird in general, these two things together make it so that if I were going to create a power plant and there weren't any subsidies or special favoritism for renewables, I would never want to create a wind power plant because what if it blows wind all the time when Texas doesn't need power and so I can't sell it and then the times when it has peak needs for power I can't produce it because the wind's not blowing. You know, I have now tied up my financial interest in a system that I have no control over. You know, so right. maybe I'll have a good week or I'll have a bad week and I have no control over that, which is why they created all these incentives, which is why they said wind power is going to be the first power sold every time. If you can make wind, we'll buy it no matter what, which now changes my incentives. Now it makes tons of sense for me to invest in wind because I know it will always have a buyer no matter what if I can produce it. Right, right. But that's but that creates a market distortion because that's, that's an such a unnatural incentive. Advantage. That's yes. not accurate. If we had 100% wind power in Texas, they would have been able to produce somewhere around 10 or 15% of the power they needed <laughs> during this blackout. Instead of rolling blackouts, you would have had almost complete blackout complete for the collapse. entire time. Yeah, yeah. 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 But that's what we're incentivizing. Yeah, it is what we're incentivizing. So in addition to that, make sure no one gets an advantage, even though there are already plenty of advantages, as we just discussed, being handed out to various industries, <laughs> to various types of energy. They instituted what was what is to me one of the funniest things I've read in terms of what people have tried to do 
to make a market work. So along with people being like, what we should do is we should introduce a quasi, some kind of privatization of a small part of this, but it's still intermingled with government to a large degree. And what we want to do is we want to encourage competition. They go a step further. Not only is it, is it tied into government incentives in all kinds of ways that make it not a market, they then try and steer it. And so what they, what they know is that a market needs competition. And how do you encourage competition? Well, what they found is there wasn't a lot of companies that wanted to join because they didn't think they could make a profit, which is a sign that competition has pushed the price down to the low levels. Like if you look at, if you look at the industries that are making a lot of profit right now, those are the industries where entrepreneurs are going to want to enter. Mm -hmm. Smart people look at that and they go, where can I make money? And then they go in, they compete, the profit margins shrink and they get lower and lower until it's no longer attractive to enter that industry. And that's a really helpful indicator, right? It tells you you've, that that market is in a go good ahead. place. Is in if a good place. If there's right. very slim profits, that means that the consumer is getting a pretty good deal. Right. Now, if you find someone that's making massive profits, ask yourself why people aren't entering that market. I, could, I guarantee you, you will find some good reason if you dig deep enough that has something to do with licensure, some kind of government granted monopoly in other forms like internet companies get. They get it indirectly. Uh, maybe though. patents. Patents. Yes, patents is a good one. There will always be something because people want to make money and they will enter into industries where they can make money if there isn't something barring the way. So what they did is they said, you know what, all of you existing companies, we're going to set a price and you can't charge less than that. And that price has to be at least a little bit higher than what you're charging now. Because what you're charging now is, is too, too difficult to, yeah, it's too difficult to be. So what, so they raise the price of power in Texas. They call it the price to be. You can look this up. It, it's, it's, it's so, so ridiculous to me. They raise the price in power in Texas to try and encourage new competitors to enter the market. Now, they could have asked, is it true that the reason there are no competitors entering the market is because things are actually remarkably competitive, which is good for the customer? Or maybe they could have said, maybe there's other reasons, right? There are regulations in the way, there are barriers to entry, there are monopolies being given in some form, and try to eliminate those. No, they raise the price for the consumer in order to attract competition <laughs> by basically saying, look, if you join and you can do what they were doing before we forced them to raise the price, you will make money. This is the kind of nonsense you get out of people who I'm embarrassed to call pro-market. Yeah, people who are basically trying to legislate a market into existence. Not a true free market, <laughs> but their own special miniature market with its own set of rules, its own requirements, its own special price to beat. It's a special requirement that making sure that no one gets an advantage in this market, which, of course, defeats the point of having a market if people can't try and get an advantage. You know, you look at a, you look at the smartphone industry where the number one thing these companies are trying to do is to gain an advantage over the other companies to increase market share. You take away their ability to do that and the competition becomes meaningless. The incentives <laughs> right. to grow become meaningless. If you tell Samsung and you tell Apple, hey, no matter what, you're only going to make this number of phones and sell them per year and charge this amount, 
where is their incentive <laughs> to add new features, to lower prices, to do anything? It's gone. Do you think we've convinced people, Brad, that this is not a market? I don't know how many I, more ways I can say it. I don't know how many more examples I can point to. <laughs> I, I sure I sure hope so. <laughs> if you can't see this is not a market now, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. And this kind of thing happens all the time. I, I like your example of privatized prisons a lot. People so often who are pro-market, like we are, we are, ex we are extremely pro-market. If you hadn't noticed. If you hadn't noticed, look at these kind of, these quasi-government institutions or private industries being paid by the government. And they go, look, well, at least it's privatized. You know, get it, get it more efficient, get it into the market. <laughs> it doesn't work. It, it still is so wrapped up in government incentives that it will not work like a market. Which brings us to a, perhaps a strange lack of conclusion to this Texas thing. It's funny when you can find every article telling you exactly what happened, right? I mean, clearly it was the wind. <laughs> clearly it was the market. Clearly it was the regulations. Clearly a lack of them. Clearly it was these, these things that you went through, Brad. So here's my conclusion. Clearly, the whole thing is a hot mess and perhaps belongs in a dumpster fire. Yeah, as you look at it, there's a number of things that could have been done that would have prevented this. Not one thing that had to be done. A number of different things that could have been done that each would have prevented it. But those things weren't done, as Dan said, because this whole system is a hot mess. And so there was no incentive to get those things done, even though... The need was seen 10 years ago when they were rolling blackouts in Texas for something to change. You know, this was not an unforeseen issue. A lot of the information we're pulling from here is from a couple of different people who've talked about this. And one of them, who's a, who's a conservative, uh, Congressman uh, Dan Crenshaw, he talks about it and talks about how this is an unforeseen issue and that the Texas grid is pretty good because he's trying to defend it. Because it has the name of market, and I applaud his dedication to the market, <laughs> but not to the Texas power grid. Don't defend it. Don't, Don't defend, defend it. this grid because this is not a market, and it has flaws. And it's the question is, is it worse than other power grids? As Dan mentioned at the beginning of this episode, talking about the California power grid and the, the rolling blackouts they've been having without the huge storm, this is not the first time a power grid has had major, major issues. This will not be the last time a power grid has major, major issues. Power grids across the United States are terrible and have many different issues. The issues they have are going to be different than the Texas power grid issues because of the way the Texas power grid is set up. And in some ways, because of the way the Texas power grid has been set up to look like a market, it is absolutely worse. I will agree with that. Yeah. I will agree with that, that because of this, this pseudo market they set up, it has made things worse in some ways. Yeah. In, in some ways, in some I'm, ways I'm sure least, it yeah. has helped, but it, but it's definitely made things worse as well. To say this is a net benefit is debatable. You'd really yes. have to look at it and break it down. There are a number of systems that appear to be private that we would say it's debatable whether they're actually worse because of their, their halfwayness, because of the fact that they're, they are not a market and they are not the government. There's some strange, weird mixture. And we would prefer the market for sure, but the mixture is not necessarily better. It's just worse in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. And as we said before, a lot of that has to do with how incentives are set up. And the problem with these half markets is that instead of the, the incentives coming up naturally, you know, through the interaction of consumers and companies, the incentives are set up by legislation. And so unless that legislation is amazing, 
you're going to have significant issues and hate to break it to you, but the legislation is almost never good enough to make a market stand even for a number of years, let alone for for a long time. <laughs> but I thought we elected the most brilliant people, Brad. Aren't they, aren't they <laughs> truly the best of the best? I have a slight tangent that I want to rant about for a minute. Rant, Dan. Most people have no idea how many layers of traditions, laws, and regulations are layered on top of every facet of society. And so we look at this Texas thing and we go, is it a market? Is it the government? And we, we look for a simple solution. You don't realize that what this thing, what this grid is, is the product. People don't realize that every political institution they look at, almost, with, with very few exceptions, what, what we think is, we think we look at something and we go, why is this here? And we can, we can rationally explain its purpose. And we think that because it has this purpose, it's built to do that thing. And it's kind of linear because in our mind, that's how our life works, right? If I want to fix the car, I go and I get the car fixed or I do it myself and everything is aimed at getting the car fixed. But when you give something, when you let some institution develop over decades, thousands of people have affected it in part through business practices, in part through legislation, in part through regulation. What you end up with lacks the clarity that we think it does, that, we're, mm -hmm. that we assume it has. We look at things and we assume that there's a purpose and that somebody had reasons for these things and that it all moves in a, in a direction and aims at solving these problems. Those assumptions will hurt you in politics because you'll miss the fact that, that most things at this point are a mess. They're a mess of conflicting interests. People who thought the power grid should be one thing and made laws, people who piled on top of that laws with a different vision, people who've come and gone in, in terms of the practices. And the, the end result, this is especially obvious in something like public education. Man, public education anywhere is such a conflict of pedagogy and, and theory and then special interests and in these, these different groups that all get a piece. And it's, but your mind can look at that and can see certain things and, and act like it makes sense if you're not looking at it carefully. And you've got to look at it carefully. You've got to dig. You've got to dig or you're not going to see the truth behind these things. And that almost everything in almost every sphere needs to be rethought. Not demolished necessarily, but can be rethought, can be made better, can be improved. Absolutely, Dan. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And that's definitely something that we've seen in Texas. And then on a broader scale, energy in general. You know, we talked about renewable energies in Texas and the effect that that had as a partial cause of the blackouts here in Texas. I say here in Texas. I'm not in Texas with you. In Texas. I carry you with me in my heart, Brad. You know, so, and I appreciate that. There you are in that. Texas. Sorry, I'm, I'm distracted now. <laughs> Derailed. I was, I was trying to make a joke and I just couldn't get the wording right. But don't worry, it would have been hilarious. In terms of uh, energy nationwide, this is something that we are going to continue to see as as the incentives for for power grids, for political bodies become more and more skewed towards particular types of renewable energies, we could see more serious issues like this because solar and wind both have the same issue. I mean, they're different issues, but they're the same fundamental issue, which as we talked about before, is the the lack of reliability. You don't, the intermittent 
power production. You don't know how much power they're going to be producing at a given time. And more importantly, you can't control it. You know, solar, you do have a pretty decent idea. You know, it's going to produce during the day and not at night. Unless it's storming, unless this and unless that, but for sure, you know, you won't produce it at night. It can only be produced during the day with wind. It's a little bit more nuanced and complicated. It has to be in certain areas. It can't just be anywhere. There has to be good wind flow. And even if you get it in those ideal areas, it's still only when the wind happens to be blowing. And so the problem with these is you need something to counterbalance that. And right now, the thing that's counterbalancing those renewable energies is the fossil fuels, especially, you know, in Texas, it's natural gas, but there's also coal and, and I was going to say nuclear energy, but it's not a fossil fuel, but it's treated <laughs> like one, you know, nuclear energy is actually a very sustainable, a very sustainable energy that is incredibly green friendly that has the worst rap in history. In terms of energy, it really does. Nucle nuclear energy <laughs> is the boogeyman of energy consumption. I was shocked to find it, that it makes up about 10% of the production of power in Texas. That was way higher than I expected. I was even more surprised to find that it makes up about 20% of the power production in the United States. Yeah, that's a ton. That's, that's not just higher than I thought. That's Way higher. <laughs> it's probably about 10 times higher than I thought. We bring up nuclear energy because the problems that you have with solar and wind, the intermittent nature of the energy, you do not have with nuclear energy. Nuclear energy cannot ramp up and ramp down like gas energy can. Natural gas can ramp up and ramp down much better. But nuclear energy, while it, it tends to stay the same, it produces a set amount it can always produce that said amount. You don't have to wait for it to be daytime. You don't have to wait for the wind to blow. <laughs> right. It can always produce. It can produce it cheaper than these other renewable energies, sand subsidies. You take away the subsidies. You take away the ridiculous de-incentives on nuclear energy, and it's going to be a yeah. much more cost-effective option. Yeah, so it, why don't we it do it? We it all know close. the reason why yeah. we don't use nuclear energy. It's because of how feared it is. You know, there have been a couple of major nuclear accidents that were devastating. You know, Chernobyl is by far the worst one. Yeah, the most famous. And the you most could, famous. It's interesting. If you Google, you know, why problems with nuclear energy today, you might as well be reading a newspaper article from 1986 after Chernobyl occurred. For whatever reason, as far as technology with the nuclear safety and things goes, as far as the public mind is concerned, it might as well have ceased to progress. Right? We, Which we've is gotten not no accurate. safer. We've gotten no, we've, we've figured out nothing to do with the toxic sludge that actually doesn't exist, <laughs> right? That is actually entirely a myth and not at all what it's like. <laughs> the nuclear waste classic appearance is actually not a thing at all. Yeah, a nuclear plant that is built today is so many times safer than the nuclear plant at Chernobyl, that the comparison is is ludicrous, really. And even other nuclear power plants at that time were so much more safer. Yes, <laughs> so much exactly. Safer. There there were there were disasters. You know, you know the, the most famous ones in in Japan and over here in in the United States that occurred. They weren't nearly as bad. The ones that occurred here in the United States, the nuclear disasters that occurred here in the United States, here in Japan, for example. I keep saying here in other places. Here in the <laughs> United States. Where are you exactly, Brad? <laughs> I'm, I'm everywhere. I just resonate with the world, Dan. You inhabit the web. 
Here in the United States, you know, if I can read about it, I'm there. Here in the United States, there in Japan, were so much better. They weren't nearly as devastating as as Chernobyl, even at that time. But since then, technology has only gotten better. The safety standards have only gotten better. And the risk has become so minimal that it's crazy. That it's crazy that we're not investing in nuclear energy. It is. It to is, me, it's crazy. It, it is sheer fear. It is sheer fear, but part of why that fear is generated is to protect the other energy creators. Because if you did switch to energy, right, that's a that's a massive change. Yeah, switch in, to nuclear energy. In yes, if you if you switch to nuclear energy, all the renewables lose out, coal loses out, natural gas loses out, right? These would employ a massive amount of people that have a massive amount of leverage. And I don't think it's coal and natural gas as much it is, as it is the renewable. Because even Certainly. if you had nuclear, you would still want fossil fuels be a, to be able to ramp up and scale down. Yes. You know, yes. That, that as you look at this discussion, when it comes to renewable energy, if renewable energy is your goal, you've got to figure something out. Because right now, there's no way to make any grid 100% renewable energy, even if that energy is nuclear – because of the ability to ramp up and scale down, you know, yeah. because you need to be able to have different amounts of energy. And that's not practical right now without at least some of the, the production that is fossil fuel that can ramp up and scale down. Yeah. And by some, we mean probably a majority if you want to be safe. And it depends because with wind and solar, you have to have way more fossil fuels than you do renewable in order to make it viable if you have nuclear the ratio can shift because nuclear is not intermittent yes yes when powers intermittent it's so terrible for a grid it just doesn't make sense on paper to have one of your major energy supplies be completely unreliable it's just not practical in terms of creating a grid Right, right. For now, we're not going to be able to avoid fossil fuels. A lot of people are touting the effectiveness of batteries to <laughs> to to make solar and wind viable. And that is a fantastic idea, but it's just not possible right now. Go <laughs> ahead and look up how many batteries you'd need to purchase to power your home through the night if you have solar panels. How much that would cost on top of the cost of solar panels. Now, quadruple that amount so that you can make it through a cloudy day, a couple of nights, and then another, and then half a cloudy day. And now apply that amount to an entire grid that's made up of solar and wind energy. And it's so many more times the cost of the actual solar and wind energy production just for the batteries. Yes. It's, you, it's near impossible. It's crazy. You cannot use batteries in a useful way on a grid. To power anything large-scale, batteries are not useful. We, they, they're, they're too inefficient. Storing energy is not a possibility here. You have to be able to produce it live. Unless we get some massive breakthrough in battery technology. And I mean massive. massive. We cannot do that. The cost... To there's some funny articles about it because people wonder that, and it's a it's a fair question, right? Why don't we have some energy stored for when the grid can't produce? That's a great question, and the answer is really simple: batteries stink. They're <laughs> they're terrible. They're they're terrible in terms of that kind of scale of energy. To store enough energy to run a city like Dallas for five minutes would cost you an absurd amount of money you might as well just make more factories that could produce more energy and that could scale up. Yeah, it would be cheaper. It would be cheaper. It would be cheaper than building battery facilities that could power it for five minutes. Like it's, it's that bad. 
It's that bad. Batteries are not even a part of this equation. Which is why even on a smaller scale, when you look at commercial buildings that require backup power, none of them rely solely on battery because it's not feasible for even that small of a scale for a commercial building. They have to use a generator to produce that much power for any serious length of time. Even if it's just a matter of hours, it becomes impractical to use batteries. The energy disincentives cover the marketplace in the United States. There are disincentives to produce the things that we should be producing. There are incentives to produce things that are that are less reliable and less effective. All of it has to do with politics, and some of it's related to you know, wrapped up in ideas about global warming and these things, which we haven't yet addressed, but will at some point. Tesla is my favorite example of how this market becomes so broken regarding energy. Tesla is profitable because of government subsidies. If Tesla was not getting subsidized, through a variety of ways, it would not continue. Its stock would have plummeted. It would have gone out of business a long time ago. Absolutely. It only exists because of the fact that taxpayers are literally subsidizing it. They're paying for it. Yeah. You and I are paying for Tesla. Yeah, We're, we're paying exactly. for that company. And if it weren't for those taxpayer dollars, it wouldn't be viable. It wouldn't be profitable at all. Yeah. And this happens with so much of energy. So much of energy works because we're paying for it, which is ironic because the goal of generating energy is to provide energy to consume so people can live. <laughs> it, it, it makes little sense, right? Unless what you're saying is, who, you know, who benefits from this? Well, it's, it's a lot of really wealthy CEOs and, <laughs> and energy companies. Yep. And they have a strong incentive to keep things the way they are. You know, you, you may have noticed the theme as we talk about things and and it's definitely a way that we tend to differ with most conservative voices is we acknowledge the fact that that these CEOs, these companies have an incentive to keep things in place, to keep these government regulations, these government subsidies in place that benefit them. There definitely is a relationship between the private sector and the government and that that relationship makes things worse for everyone except for those few parties involved. And that is absolutely the case. We don't believe that all businessmen are saints. No, no, they're not. In fact, the easiest way for a business to stay on top is for them to team up with government. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's usually the way things end up going because that's where the incentives coincide. So where does that leave us, Dan? Where does that leave us at the end of this episode? That's a good question. <laughs> Let us know what you make of it. What, what have you concluded about the Texas blackout? What do you think? What should be done? What are the most viable solutions to these problems? Because, you know, because there is something to be said for the the appeal of renewable energy. I've loved the idea of getting solar panels on my house mm-hmm. when I one day purchase a house as as having that option of another supply of energy, of making things more cost effective in the long run. Those are all fantastic ideas, but you also have to weigh the practicalities of the way the grid <laughs> is set up now. And that's the other question is what is a good alternative to this current grid setup, because as we've said before, not just in Texas, but in general, these grids are messy. There's got to be a better option out there. What is it? Yeah, there's got to be a better way than the, the classic grid. There has to be. So as as you leave this episode with questions, I'm right there with you, you know, <laughs> these energy questions are, are important. And it's something that we will definitely hit again. You know, I'd love to talk more about nuclear energy. I'd love to talk more about the grid. 
Whether or not we do in the near future, who knows, but it's definitely an interesting subject and worth spending more time on. Yes, and especially the question of, so what do we do? What, in terms of what laws are we going to change? What, what, which directions we want to push? I would love to see actual market, an actual market grid and see how it arranges itself. How that would actually see work. See it play out, see things fail and get better and see what happens and how it ends up functioning. With that, thank you for listening. This has been episode 32 of the Rethinking Politics podcast. You can find our podcast anywhere you get podcasts, any of the major locations. You can message us at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can support us on our Patreon, which you can find links to on our website. And our website, which is something of a hub for all of these locations, rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com. We'll see you all next week. 